Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor and Chief Critic, joined as always by our Editor-at-Large, Ann Thompson, out in Los Angeles. And Ann, though the Oscars are very close, so close you can practically see that giant gold man looming on the horizon, we have other stuff to talk about, starting with Black Panther, which, as we are recording, is on the verge of making historic box office and you know we talked about this movie a little bit before and just you know how it's you know it is a marvel movie but it's also this kind of culturally significant uh shift you know in terms of representation on this level i think what's really interesting if you look at the way that the anticipation around it uh has already built to this a certain level is that it's only going to get louder right i mean i feel like people are going to be talking about this movie and going to see it multiple times. This is going to be a conversation well into uh, the next several months. Well, it is a little bit like Wonder Woman in the sense that you have this starving audience and it it is going to be the top grossing film with a largely black lead cast, which is a record currently held by Straight Outta Compton. Uh, so F. Gary Gray is the other filmmaker who's had some pretty big uh, movies like The Fate of the Furious, which opened at $101 million, um, or Tim Story's Fantastic Four, which opened at $77 movie, million, or Scary Movie, which opened at $72 million. This is going to open at like 150 or more. Some people think it's as high as 165 which would put it behind only Star Wars The Last Jedi at $209 million or Beauty and the Beast at $175 million. But the point, as you make it, is that this is for everybody. This is for it people is, I mean, all over the world who are just dying to see something like this. Well, Set in Africa. A, yeah, I mean, look, the, it's, it's not that it's a perfect movie, but a lot of blockbusters aren't. It's a very polished blockbuster. And they it's, put and money it's into it. They, this the, is the, the by far the most money ever spent but you on know a movie what? like there this. There was money put into Transformers, too, and, and that was a terrible movie, all of them. The first one was fun, but discardable. The first this movie, Transformers movie was really good, and one well, of them, it was fun, but discardable. What I what I think is interesting here is discardable. You want to say that, but they were mel- they were well made. Well, no, but what I think is uh, the first one is 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 fun, but it's it's the, what I think is interesting about Black Panther is that it is reaching for a certain kind of substance that you often don't see on this scale. No Star Wars movie in the current spate of Star Wars movie, movies we've been subjected to, it's also wrestling with, you know, uh, identity politics. And the way that this movie deals with the kind of interesting divide between African identity and African American identity, yeah, which yeah. is the essence of which the movie. Which is why it, Michael Jordan is so extraordinary in it. It's a good he's, role. He's, care, he's playing a villain, and he's a but villain, he's but also he's playing a, a victim. He's playing someone who's been abandoned and maltreated and unsupported. And that's what this movie's about. It's about a historical how do you foundation support to it. people. Yes. Well, what's interesting is that the movie begins in 92. There's an actual kind of historical foundation to it. And it also, and I've been spending some time working on a story about Ryan Coogler and sort of his trajectory. You know, this is a guy who's 31 years old and has made this ginormous movie and with three features under his belt has a body of work and a certain kind of sensibility. But when you talk to a lot of people sort of who have been pushing for more diversity in the film industry. People like Charles King, who was at WME and then started his own company, who's really helped uh, Kugler along quite a bit. 
or you know other African American filmmakers, you get the sense that you know it, it. Everybody is celebrating Black Panther because it's a satisfying blockbuster made on a certain level, and it's also very meaningful. And representation is a big deal, but it also exists on this interesting continuum, right? Because you had ten years ago this first Barry Jenkins movie, Medicine for Melancholy, which very few people saw. But if you talk to younger black filmmakers, a lot of them saw that movie and were sort of inspired to do their own thing, including the guy who eventually made Dear White People, Justin Simeon. And then after that, you had Donald Glover doing Atlanta on FX and Moonlight, which comes along and wins Best Picture, and then Get Out, which comes along and is this also a ginormous commercial success. So in some ways... What Black Panther represents is the culmination of all of these different elements of, of African-American storytelling on a mainstream scale, reaching the, that sort of level. Now, the question is... And getting that kind of support, which is the, yeah, really, exactly. the really big thing that moves me is that Marvel, they had a comic book, they had IP, they had a very popular... Uh, story that they knew would draw viewers. So they had they, they, they weren't flying into the unknown. They had every reason to believe that if they supported this movie at a very high level with all of their art departments and all of their visual effects and everything else, that this would be uh, an incredible uh, success for them. But it's still very moving that, well, that, the that they I did have... it on that scale. But the question I have is, I mean, what happens in other words, now? what's his? Jordan Peele got, you know, he, he got he got a Jason Blum four point five million dollar budget. Yeah, that was know? not expected to be what <laughs> what what it became at many different steps along the way, which is what is what's interesting because what happened with Black Panther was so calculated. It will obviously now lead to all kinds of different sequels and could remain in the zeitgeist for years to come. Question is, what else is there? I mean, we have Ava DuVernay. First African-American woman to direct a $100 million blockbuster, Wrinkle in Time. But that movie is not necessarily being seen as quite the same kind of, you know, great stride in terms of representation as something like Black Panther. And is, is there going to be more stuff greenlit outside of this specific uh, event movie that uh, will continue this conversation? I mean, the assumption is yes, because obviously it's proven to be profitable. But then again, there's still this disconnect in our industry because if you look beyond the most obvious uh, examples, which are the movies, you have the gatekeepers at the studios and it's still pretty white, right? So there's a diversification of you know the industry as a whole that probably still needs to happen in order to really cement how these films are getting made. I mean, why did it take so long for this to happen in the first place? Because, you know, who who are the peop people well, who are the other question, for themselves? Right, right. But the other, I mean, Marvel has the confidence. Marvel has the success. Marvel has the, app, you know, the infrastructure to support this. They set up Black Panther in a previous movie. It's all part of their universe that they're creating. And now they're moving on to, to um, Captain Marvel. They're doing women as superheroes. They've been, by the way, they haven't done that yet. <laughs> Marvel know, has not long, done no. that yet. You know, where where is is Black Spider? You know, uh, but but this is this is you know, Scarlett Johansson's a major movie star and they still haven't well, done that. Supposedly they're talking about doing the Black Widow movie, yeah. but you know, yeah. But it is true. I mean, it's it, it's taken Marvel a while to get to this point and the next big Marvel event movie isn't going to be 
you know, a diversity play like this one. But it, I think well, part of the problem Larson, is, you know, being at the front of, of, a, of a movie is is pretty big deal. Well, sure. I mean, and Captain Marvel looks like it'll be fun. I mean, that's it's not necessarily a tentpole in the way that uh, Black Panther will be. I mean, we have yet to see it, so it's sort of. I don't sort know of why hot. you're saying that. Why because you because I think that? I think that there's this sense that it's they all Captain do pretty Marvel well. Is, but Captain Marvel doesn't resonate in our culture the way that Black Panther has resonated. Are for you decades. are you saying? Uh, that, well, Guardians of the Galaxy had never resonated in the culture, That's and it true. went out and did really well. It was a, it Iron was a, Man was definitely B tier. People didn't necessarily oh, recognize Iron Man. Character. Not the way they recognize the other big characters. You know, um, Captain know. Marvel. I mean, I mean, I mean the, Captain again, America I mean, and Thor. Is, I grew up uh, with those. I grew up well, with yeah. all of them. I mean, Captain, and I grew up with Iron I didn't, Man. Iron Man, I did not grow up with. But it was also, but Iron Man also was a, a, a play to boys. So I will acknowledge that maybe there is a, a female contingency that grew up with Captain Marvel, but I, I, I just, my, my sense I'm of assuming Marvel, right now yeah. that you are making an assumption that Captain Marvel doesn't have the backing because it's a woman. You are no, totally, you're way off you are that. totally doing that. You no. may not be aware of it, but you are. Oh, I, no, I would be aware of it if I was, because I, I'm certainly, you know, checking Why my Why are you making the assumption that day. it's not going to have a big ripple for it, Wonder Woman? No, I'm not, I'm not assuming it won't have a big ripple. And what I'm saying is that, that it doesn't it doesn't have the same sort of immediate kind of uh, uh, name value that Black Panther has had for so long. I mean, this has been a culturally significant character even before the Black Panther Party existed. The comic books came around. That's how deep this one goes. If Captain Marvel turned out well, and, I, and I, my, the hopes are high for it, great. But then you have Avengers Infinity War Part 1, which just sort of consolidates all this stuff into one place. So that movie's going to have a totally different profile. I, I'd be curious to see if it, if it, it has a profile to match Black Panther, because the way that they position these Avengers movies is like every movie builds up to another one. But, um, but that seems to be being positioned as the next really, really big Marvel movie. I mean, Captain Marvel's not coming out until later. Yeah, no, so. there's, a, there's a ways to go. Yeah. What is it? Civil so, War uh, or something? Yeah, well, we already had this, the start of the Civil War. This is Infinity Wars Part 1. Infinity so. Wars, forgive They're me. They're going to be fighting for the next decade, I'm, I'm pretty sure. In any case, on the other end of the spectrum of, uh, of uh, the diversity conversation, there's been some... Uh, talk of Christopher Nolan this week, uh, currently campaigning for Dunkirk. Yeah, there's some. There seems to be some some signs of movement in the force, if you like. I mean, uh, Shape of Water is still steady as they go, as the sort of front runner with the biggest number of of constituencies behind it. Um, you know, it, it's won what it needed to win, and it's. Uh, you know, looking good, but there are signs that Dunkirk is going to do very well and win, maybe it'll just win technical ones like editing or, you know, challenge Roger Deakins for cinematography from, from Hoyt, Van Hoytema, Be, because there are, uh, it was so much fun to sort of dig in, to go over to the syncope offices on the Warner Brothers lot and dig in to, in a wonky way, to what uh, Chris Nolan uh, did on this movie and all the rules that he broke and all the ways that he innovated to get, you know, IMAX cameras into the cockpit and, and to get 
Tom Hardy into the cockpit and, and you know, get that incredible footage uh, that, you know, wouldn't have been able, it wouldn't have looked nearly as good or been as convincing if it had been done the usual way that they do these things, these sort of reenactments of being in the air. And then, uh, you know, putting these um, camera rigs on boats that are used to uh, chase cars, you know, and installing them on boats instead, these big crane you know, tracking cameras and having Hoyt Van Hoytema just carry, just lug this big guy lugging these IMAX cameras into uh, the action. And um, I just got a kick out of out of what he did accomplish. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that Christopher Nolan isn't the kind of guy who turns on the charm with anyone. Uh, he's a serious guy. We, we've been over guy. this before. I think you said he, he had a, a stick up his butt last time. I, I may have said something to that A certain effect. British... But, but he's he's really one of the great uh, filmmakers. So I'm curious to see how that uh, ends up playing out in the. Well, I have to say, I've seen the movie. I know you've seen it a couple of times. I saw it twice. Second time I saw it on a small screen, which was interesting. Not on a. How did it play on, on a small screen? It, yeah, no, I've it was, only it, seen it very big. I so I saw it on IMAX and on the real the only real IMAX we have in Manhattan. And then I didn't see it on a on a you know something as ridiculous as watching it on an airplane like some people have said they they've done. But but I watched a screener on a on a TV uh, that was you know reasonably sized, but you know no special speakers or anything. And it was interesting because I, the movie does still work because you start to pay more attention to the beats of it. The kind of he's a very rhythmic filmmaker where each shot kind of leads into the next, and you're sort of constantly trying to keep up with this story with a lot of information but it's all it's also his most concise piece of filmmaking right it's a 90 it's minute short. movie it's yeah i mean and, 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 it was a and 76 actually, page script because yeah, there was no fashion. dialogue in it but i guess what the question is with all this stuff is this has come up with him before right it took him so long to get to the point where he even got a best director nomination you know he's one he, there have been plenty of craft wins for his movies over the years and, and things like that but everything that we're describing still is you're describing an expert craftsman, and if you compare that to the way people talk about, say, a Guillermo del Toro, where it's like, you know, they're talking about the In a popularity love, contest, they're, they're more likely to look at even what's interesting, by the way, this year when you get when the five um, uh, directors were assembled for the DGA, and, and in that case, you had Martin McDonough. And by the way, listening to that symposium conversation, which went on for over two hours, is fascinating because you really get into the depth of in a wonky way as I said before of, of, of how they made these movies and um, but also the Santa Barbara video is up online which was much shorter um, and much more about them sort of praising each other but the point is they're writer directors all five of them e even with McDonough on the DGA side uh, being replaced by PTA on the Oscar side um, awesome. And and so they're auteurs. They really are. But you tend to think of Guillermo as more of an artist, and you think of Nolan as more of a technician. But he created that screenplay. You know, he really did create that weird, unusual structure with Lancey and Air. He really did make a movie that didn't rely on character development to tell its story, and he really did figure out, uh, speaking to the rhythm that you were describing, it has a lot to do with this long, uninterrupted music cue that Hans Zimmer did with these um, 
rising sounds like a corkscrew sound going up and up and up and, and building tension, which he's done before on his other films. But in this case, he synchronized and edited together the music sure. and the sound in it's a not very as synchronous as it way. Yeah. You know, the, the Hans Zimmer thing can become such a cliche, the whole Brahm thing. Yeah, like there's yeah. even a website where you press a button and you can hear that noise. And I think it's a, it doesn't get in the way of the action so much as it sort of sustains it in a more interesting way. But you have to admit, if, if this movie one best picture at this point in the conversation that would be seen as a as something of a surprise it started out as the front runner so th th i i would argue if all right there's two things you could say here one is that one of the reasons why paul thomas anderson's movie was a surprise getting six nominations instead of maybe three including best picture and director which was totally unexpected and leslie manville totally unexpected um would be that it, it simply didn't register. It, wrote, it, it, it came in so late that it didn't register with the key guild groups that would have given us a signal that it was a strong contender. It just went in under the radar. In, this, in the case of, of Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, what you have there is you don't have the screenplay being at one signpost and you don't have the actors being another signpost because they're all such small parts, and yet it must it must be a strong uh, it must be a very strong contender nonetheless. Yeah, it, it, I mean we'll never know exactly how things break down. It's, it's got its supporters to be sure. The other interesting category that, that's been kicked up a bit this past week is the the original screenplay where you have Jordan Peele and Greta Gerwig. Now I find that kind of ongoing showdown between those pair as affable as it is to be probably the most fascinating thing about this award season. It is. Because younger you could, generation yeah. and, and the more, very edgy, you know. Yeah, I agree. Uh, what's interesting there is is that they met uh, for the first time on the Vanity Fair shoot in Bel Air where they're dressing the old up. school Hollywood it, stuff. It was such yeah. a great shoot. I really enjoyed it. And it was if you look back at that story, they kind of laid out the parameters right there and then. These are first time directors, these are actors turned writer-directors, uh, there was every reason for them to hit it off, and they did, and they became really good friends on the awards circuit, very supportive of each other, called each other up, you know, uh, on Oscar morning, uh, you know, which I thought was lovely. Um, but but it, they are the two who are going against each other in original screenplay, and at the WGA awards, uh, Jordan Peele won, and I suspect that he will win uh, on Oscar night too, because people seem to be giving that movie a little more points mm -hmm. for originality and um, it has wider appeal, I think, finally. Well, and also going back to what you were saying before about Dunkirk, where it was sort of the original frontrunner for Best Picture, I mean, Get Out was a front, was certainly solidifying its status way before Lady Bird premiered in the fall and started gaining its traction. So it's been, it's had a lot of time to kind of be out there. And it's huge. It's a very big, it's, it's so a very successful. big hit all over the, the world, a much bigger hit than Lady Bird, which is, you know, just heading toward 50 million domestic and hasn't opened over over uh, overseas really uh, that much and i'm just so curious to see what's going to happen with both of these these young people who have been catapulted not exactly overnight but in in a very short period of time into into sort of the the kind of upper echelons of filmmaking talent and we don't really know exactly I mean, jordan peele's producing all kinds of stuff supposedly writing something we don't quite know what greta's gonna 
direct next. She says no, she has an, an assignment that she has a, a, a gig to direct something. She's excited, but she won't tell me what it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's tricky, but I mean, the expectations are so hard because you, 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 you sort of latch on to these people on the basis of something they've created. And then, you know, the expectations are nuts. I mean, I can't imagine what it must be like if you're somebody like Barry Jenkins and you're about to, after everything that happened with Moonlight, Beale Street, if it, it, everybody's going to assume this is going to be another game-changing movie. What if it's just a really solid drama? Oh, the sophomore thing you know? is a bitch, you know? Yeah. It's, there's a lot of expectations. So. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the thing that follows up the, the breakout is what I mean. Yeah. It's no, going exactly. to be a big deal. I can't wait to see it, though. And I can't yeah, wait to no see pleasure. what Jordan Peele and Greta Gerwig do next. And whatever happens, they're, 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 they have ascended into a totally different sphere than they were in before where you have people exactly. like del toro and and nolan and and pta you know and spielberg spielberg wanted to sit with greta at the lunch so that yeah they got a to selfie her, together you know How great is that's, that? that's 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 what you know so you you have a they are they now have access to a lot of support again that they didn't have before so we're sort of sitting around in our homes in our respective cities tracking stuff, seeing stuff when we can, and the countdown to the Oscars. In the meantime, the festival circuit does what it does. The Berlin Film Festival started today as we're recording, and we've got David Ehrlich out there who saw Isle of Dogs. And Can't wait to see it. I was looking at the trailer again. Yeah. I finally I went mean, to see Paddington 2 on Valentine's Day. I just I loved the first one, so it wasn't a surprise. I was a it's little better. surprised by Hugh way Grant. Better. Hugh Grant blew my mind. But he's having a blast. Oh my Supporting God. actor. Our, totally. What do you think? I would I think yeah. that's a great idea. But yeah. anyway, he yeah. um uh, my point is that uh there was a trailer for the West Anderson, um, the latest stop action, stop motion movie, and I can't wait to see it. I cannot wait to see it. And yeah, the, the reaction has good. been yeah? interesting. You yeah. know, I think I think they're sort of the problem is that you see a trailer like that. There's like clips. All these assets for the movie are out there and existing expectations. And as far as I could tell from this first screening, the reaction is sort of like appreciative, but also not surprised by anything. So it'll be curious to see how it continues to get out there. It's a closing night film at the South by Southwest Film Festival, and then it'll come out. And, you know, you have to assume it, the movie will do well. It's just a question of, are critics going to get behind it? Because with somebody like Wes Anderson, there's always that possibility that people feel like they've kind of been there before. So hopefully that's not the case. But, you know, you're always rooting for somebody like that to deliver. So, and, you know, Berlin's continuing along. There's Who knows what kind of stuff will break out of that festival. It's a really interesting moment because... This is the last year for the, for the head of the festival, Dieter Koslick, and coming off of the news that you know, Sundance is replacing Trevor Groth. There's all these interesting openings uh, at film festivals. And so one of the things we've been talking about a bit this week is, you know, could the, the uh, sort of identity of these festivals change for good if these positions are filled by women. There's yes, also the we've Director's been saying Fortnite, that if there Toronto. were more women in the real positions of power at these festivals, that they might have more impact on the selections. Um, there are way more movies directed by women than are necessarily given prominent slots um, at a lot of these festivals, especially Cannes and Berlin. 
Um, and Co Dietrich Koslick has just been under such fire, so he's he's leaving. I'm we you and I were both singing the praises of Jacqueline Lianga, who runs AFI, and I would love to see her be considered for one of these positions. Lay, lay out for people. There's Berlin, as well as what else? So it's so it's Sundance replacing director of programming, which is basically the number two job. The person who really manages. Filmmaker relationships and, and, and kind of keeps the programming team on the same page. And then Berlin is replacing its top person. And then director's Fortnite, which is basically sort of a sidebar at Cannes, although it's un, it's unofficially attached to the festival. It's like 20 odd films that tend to get a supposed good Supposed to be cutting there. edge. Supposed yeah, to be I mean, new you know, discoveries. Look, Florida Project launched there last year. And that's a good kind of director's Fortnite. Sometimes it's a first time filmmaker breakout. Somebody, it's, sometimes it's but like sometimes somebody they put something weird by yeah. Coppola in there. Too. Right. But it's, yeah. a, but it's a tricky, it's a tricky one because it's, it's sort of overseen by this consortium of French filmmakers. And so they are pushing out Edward Wayne Trupp, who is very well liked. But uh, there seems to be a, a true desire to have a woman run that section, which could be very interesting in terms of how that shakes up the programming sensibility at Directors Fortnite. But and they then they would the be fall, more likely to go with someone French in that universe. Oh, I mean, if they don't go with someone French, it would be it would be. I don't uh, remember right. anyone not French ever being no, I mean, in the, charge. The, it's, the, the French identity is a big part of it, and, and French film culture is has a different relationship to Me Too and all that stuff, but is also going through its own kind of, you know, wrestling with the sexism that, that's been there for so long and trying to figure out how can we kind of push to make a difference. So that would be a very interesting one. And that it also dovetails into the fall where you have Toronto, Piers Handling, who's been the CEO, run this festival for 30 years. Is This is his last year. So there is a search for a CEO. Cameron Bailey, who's the head of programming there, is a candidate for that. Uh, if he moves up, then that opens another big programming spot. I so would it's have to really assume that they would let him continue to be. He's a good fit. Yeah. I mean, um, he's running the, the strategic plan uh, for, the, for the festival. It should be Michelle Mayhew. They should put her in charge. Makes sense. I mean, that's what's interesting is that at every aspect, every level of the industry where you have questions of how do we, you know, diversify it's not. It's not really an issue of you know where are these people. They're there. They're just often not in those top jobs. I mean, everyone is trying to kind of develop a greater awareness about this stuff. But it's like at Sundance, you know, there are a lot of women below. You Trevor could hire Rock. outside, but you could also look inside. And there's plenty of good options. If they go over the women, if they go, if they step over the women, they better hire a woman. If you see what I'm saying. Oh, absolutely. Otherwise, I mean, it, it's going to look really bad. Bad, and they know it. They know it. I mean, that—that's the thing. It's like there's so much transparency about this dialogue. It's usually not that transparent, and now people are just more sort of sensitive to these things. And the question is, will if let's say that all of these positions are filled by women, how will that make a difference? It could make a difference in terms of how people respond to certain movies. It could also be make a difference in terms of how festivals sort of host uh, more progressive conversations about the nature of the industry. But it's all sort of you know, there are a lot of unknown variables here, and then there are some very clear solutions that not only will help kind of maintain a positivity to this conversation, but it's kind of like Black Panther. Like, it can actually lead to something good at the end of the day that people can feel good about and also is, is sort of creating a legitimate sense of, of another era. So that's kind of the hope there. In any case, uh, speaking of challenges in the public sphere, 
we're coming back to Quentin Tarantino this week to to check in and see how he's doing after last week he had a bit of a rough time with a couple of apologies he had to make. Now you're hearing that while it seems like DiCaprio is still on board to do his movie, the studio itself is not saying one way or another. I just did. I just did what you do. I got in touch with Tarantino's uh, rep at William Morris, and they said, full steam ahead. We're going forward for a June start date. Leo's set. We're going to some other people this week. And uh, some of the people rumored, you know, to be on board, but are not clearly not yet on board, are Margot Robbie and and Brad Pitt and and uh, um, Tom Cruise, uh, you know, Sam Jackson. You know, are we going to see the usual suspects? And then um, what the other thing you do is you check with the studio to see, is it greenlit? Is it going full steam ahead? Is it real? And they said they had nothing to, to say about it. So that was, that was where we are. But I mean, they won a big bidding like, war. I mean, so I mean presumably, they're probably doing it, but if Leo's on board, it, my, yeah. my bets are they're going to go ahead with a $100 million budget and it's almost and too so easy for forth. them to wiggle away from you right now and basically just not comment because if they do comment i mean it's kind of like what hbo is dealing with james franco and the deuce it's like you kind of wait and see you know is something else going to happen did tarantino do five more really awful interviews like <laughs> within the last 30 years that people are going to dig up and use against him because he can't just keep apologizing it would be a, you know like a bad joke but, again he's apologizing for things that are not Sexual harassment. I mean, he's not. He's right. not in you that boat. Easy. You could say dumb. I'm not stuff. saying it's. I'm not saying what he was apologizing for wasn't bad. It was terrible. No, he said something dumb. And he, but and, he, and, he, and an what he did on the set of 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 Kill Bill with with Uma wasn't great either. You well, know, he, but he then put you had the stuff about danger. him choking people, right? And and the women coming forward and saying, well, you know, Diane Kruger saying he choked me and I was okay with it because that's what we decided to do. It's, it, that that seems to have diffused it, but then if there was other stuff to that effect, or I could see the studio just trying to make sure that they are a hundred percent certain that something else isn't going to derail this, given what everyone's been through in the last few years. Just you know, in the last year, how many projects have had to to fall apart or contracts eliminated? We just found out today that. Yes, Jeffrey Tambor is leaving Transparent. Yes, I mean, for real. this stuff it just keeps coming, and yeah. it and it will keep coming. One hopes that Tarantino won't get taken out, but you also, you know, anything is possible at this point. So uh, next week, we're going to be so close to the Oscars that that it's going to feel like it's already over. But uh, <laughs> voting will start. Well, the ballots <laughs> actually don't. Oh, by the way, we did put up an analysis, an, an anonymous ballot. I'm sort of fascinated by this. Obviously, there are other uh, sites that do have done this before. And my idea was that we would go find some, you know, really cool, smart people who, you know, the point isn't to make fun of the Oscar voters. It's actually to learn how they think and to sort of get into, get inside their thought process. A but little sometimes bit. they say kind of silly stuff, so you never know. You never know. It is, it is, it is it clearly. They're just like us. It's not, they're not film critics. Let's put it that way, Eric. <laughs> I hated that movie. I liked yeah. that movie. Um, but but uh, but but the uh, so we put up one and we have some more coming. But I am fascinated by the reactions uh, to those. Yes. You know, it's more to come. Fascinating. We will certainly dig into that but next the week. All right. Don't go out, by the way, until the 20th of February.
Uh, so we so have a little bit of time. We have the BAFTAs this weekend. That's going to tell us some things, uh, especially, I think, I suspect that uh, Dunkirk could do well, Darkest Hour could do well, Billboards could do well. You know, the movies that lean British Usual Brits. tend to do well. And then we have uh, on the 20th, and, and so there's only literally one week. There's seven days, to the 20th through the 27th, I guess. That, that you have actual Oscar voting going on, where people have the ballots in hand and can, or online and can send them in. It's a tiny little window, but it can make a big difference. In any case, uh, we'll touch base next week. It sounds like we'll have plenty to dig through. Enjoy your weekend. You too, Eric.